Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this episode three, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is seen by the Gospel of Mark. But it occurs to me that to understand the world of Jesus, we also need to understand their religion, meaning we need to understand their priorities or their fears, even their barriers, as well as their hopes and their dreams. So in this podcast, I hope that we can explore the Jewish idea of something or someone being, quote, unclean, unclean. We need to really understand this biblical concept so that we can understand the problems that people run into. And the Hebrew word for unclean is a word used in Leviticus nearly 100 times. So this idea is very important. Generally speaking, something is unclean if it is unfit to use and worship to God. That's the definition. But people can be unfit as well by choice or by blemish. So in Isaiah chapter 6, for instance, the prophet has a vision of God, but he worries about being unclean. And this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's seen a vision of heaven, but he's unclean. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now this has touched your lips. Your guilt has departed and your sin has blotted out. So what we see here is that the prophet is made clean by God, even if he is a person of unclean lips. And amongst the people of unclean lips, God makes something unclean, clean. Which brings me to another point when it comes to unclean. Unclean is a big worry for them because it leaks out. People make other people unclean. Food makes other food unclean. Whole nations can be removed from God. So to be unclean, friends, is to be cut off from God and from neighbor. This is why they avoided anything unclean as best they could. And also seen this way, unclean could also be used as a super weapon, the nuclear option of their day. There's a scene that happens in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures at the biblical site of Bethel or Bethel. We learned about it in an earlier podcast. Bethel is an important place in the Bible. Um, Abraham camped at Bethel. Jacob had his dream there at Bethel. Remember Jacob's ladder? That happened there. And then some 900 years before Jesus, and we learned this a couple of episodes back, an Israelite king named Jeroboam built a worship center in order to compete with the southern kingdom of Judah. And I think in order for us to begin to explore the stories in the Hebrew scriptures uh, today, I'm going to take a pause and give you a biblical timeline, which I like to do from, from time to time so that we can place the stories in the Bible. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, can write these down. Uh, I'd like for you to write them down and stick these in the back of your Bible, these dates, so that you can place the stories that you hear. And if you can't write them down right now, come back to it, and I'll give these to you so you can write them down again. So, The first date that we write down when we write down a biblical timeline is 2000 B.C. 2000 B.C., that means 4,000 years ago, and that's Genesis chapter 12. That's the beginning of the story of us. That's the call of Abraham out to leave a city and to go be different in the way that God asked him to be different. 
Genesis 1 through 11, that's prehistory. That's creation. That's the fall of humanity. That's how we got into the mess where we are. That's a descent from an idyllic existence in the garden to something deadening and and life-denying, if you will. And so Abraham is asked to live something different and something better, and that happens 4,000 years ago, 2000 B.C. 1500 B.C. will help us get our minds around the approximate exodus uh, from Egypt. So that's, that's the flight of the Israelite nation now, a nation of slaves rescued by God, something they couldn't do on their own, very, very important backstory in our Bibles. Matter of fact, it could be the important backstory because our communion words are Passover words, they're Exodus words. Uh, we can see the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as our Exodus from death into life. I mean, it's just, it's sort of the ultimate metaphor for faith, if you will, even for resurrection. So that's 1500 BC. So we got 2000 BC, Abraham, 1500 BC, Egypt, 1000 BC is King David, mighty King David of song and story, uh, never never to be better than, than King David's kingdom. The borders of Israel, almost the same as the borders of the nation of Israel today, that's 1000 BC, but 100 years later, it's over. 900 BC, this kingdom now has split into two. So these two nations comprise 10 tribes in the north of the nation of Israel, two tribes in the south, kingdom of Judah. Kingdom of Judah has the capital of Jerusalem, which makes it a little more stable. Kingdom of Israel has got more money, and it's got more people, but it never really has the never really has the stability uh, that the southern nation has with Jerusalem. So that in 722 BC, that's our first hard date, if you will, they're wiped off the face of the earth by the Mesopotamian superpower called Assyria. Now we learned a couple podcasts back that the Samaritans claimed to be those. Israelites who remained there uh, after the Assyrian invasion, but we also know from our Bibles that uh, that the Assyrians had a policy of mixing local blood with people from displaced areas, so they would create a homogenous, if you will, Mesopotamian culture, which is exactly what happened. And so, um, and so, the Israelites were never really to be found again. Not not intact. Not as not as God's people. 586 B.C. is the next hard date that you write under 722 B.C. 586 B.C. is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army, intending to do the same thing as the Assyrians, intending to wipe them off the map, taking their best and their brightest to a faraway land and trying to mix them up, mix them up but they don't. They stay intact. In fact, in a faraway land, after losing their temple, they got their religion in a faraway land, after losing everything they thought they needed to have access to God, they discovered that they had each other. In 1984, I was still a fairly new Episcopalian. I had joined the Church of the Ascension in Montgomery, Alabama in 1981, and I had the zeal of a convert. Oh, I loved the Episcopal Church, but in particular, I loved it at that church. It is one of the loveliest buildings in the South. It's the only example of Ralph Adams Cram architecture. This is the architect responsible for the Gothic revival movement in America, the architect of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York. It is an exquisite building, and it burned in 1984. In the summer, a welder's torch uh, threw a spark into some insulation, burned up through the wooden floor, and suddenly the Church of the Ascension lost its jewel of a building. Now, there would be a time when we would rebuild it, and it's almost to the way that it was before. It's a stone structure. Much of the wood was spared. The windows were restored. We were able to go back. 
But in the meantime, we discovered that we had something more important and more precious than, uh, than the building, and we had each other. And while we met at a local college, we grew. We grew deeper in relationships with each other, but we also grew numerically. People found us. They wanted to be a part of this exciting church that had reinvigorated Bible studies, reinvigorated preaching. Uh, in, in, in other words, in the time of exile, we got busy, and we found out who we were, and we found out who God is. And the same thing happened in this biblical story of the exile of God's people from Judah, 586 B.C., They never thought they would go home again, and so they began to write down the Bible, the Bible as we have it today. They took scrolls and scraps of stories that they had told for a thousand years, and they wrote them down, putting them all down so that we would have the Bible to teach our children for generation to generation to generation. They lost their temple, but now they have a Bible. They lost their temple, but now they have something they can carry with them. And then, lo and behold, God calls a prophet way out there, Ezekiel. They thought that that a prophet could only be called in the land of Judah, could only be called there in the capital city, but they learn that God is everywhere. They move from becoming monolatrous, which is to say that there are many gods, but they've cashed in with the God of the Hebrews, to monotheism, which God is Lord over all. They became different. Now, on your timeline, if you look at the two hard dates, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., If you write in between the name Josiah, 640 to 609 B.C., just in between the 722, 586, 640 to 609, this is a very important king of Judah. He's a reforming king. Israel has already disappeared, but he wants to do away with all that is bad in the land around him. And this includes old worship sites and what had formerly been the kingdom of Israel. So the story that I'm going to read to you with this idea of unclean in mind is 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning with the 15th verse. It's a story you probably never heard before, but it will get us thinking about the importance of unclean. Moreover, at the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, he pulled down that altar along with the high place. He burned the high place, crushing it to dust. He also burned the sacred pole. So the high place is an altar. The sacred pole is a fertility pole, if you will. And that's a big no-no in any worship of God. Those are unclean things. Josiah is destroying it. As Josiah turned, he saw tombs there on the mount. And he went and he took the bones out of the tombs and he burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed when Jeroboam stood by the altar at the festival. He turned and looked up at the tomb, the man of God who had predicted these things. Well, what we have back in the book of First Kings, uh, you've got this prophet who tells Jeroboam when he builds this altar that a king of Judah will come one day and he will destroy it forever. And this is how this is how Josiah does destroy the altar. He takes bones out of the tombs adjacent to the to the altar at Bethel, and he grinds the bones on the altar, which renders this altar unclean forever which shows you how important a concept unclean would be or how dangerous unclean could be. Now, this brings us to the world of Galilee and to the world of Jesus with a story about two people now who are in need of saving, but they're two people who are fast becoming beyond the pale when it comes to unclean. The story is in Mark chapter 5, beginning with the 21st verse to verse 43. 
And I'm going to read this to you because Mark, Mark's gospel is very scant with details, and yet this one is rich. Uh, Mark's stories are very short. This one is not so short. This one has actually two stories that inform each other, and the technique is called a sandwich. Uh, in other words, they're two different stories, but they're also the same stories. And if you listen to details, you can find out they're really about the same thing. So Mark chapter 5, beginning with the 21st verse, it goes this way. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Now pay attention for a second. Whenever Mark's gospel or any gospel uses markers again and again and again, the gospel writer's trying to tell you something. And in the case of the gospels here, the sea is a place of clarity. The sea is a place of calling. The sea is a place of healing. Important things happen by the sea. In fact, my favorite verse in the entire Bible is Mark 16, 7. Out of a thousand pages of scripture, it's Mark 16, 7. It goes like this. Uh, the tomb is empty. It's Easter morning. Uh, terrified women appear. And a mysterious young man in the corner says, go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he told you. And it's my favorite verse of the whole Bible because Peter doesn't get left behind. He's denied his best friend three times, but he now will be the rock upon which Christ will build his church because he's a man with scars, but he's also a man forgiven, made holy, just like Isaiah was made holy. Uh, no, no doing on his own. He's a man of unclean lips, and yet God heals him, but also notice that they go back to Galilee. Galilee, the sea, is the place of commissioning. It's the place of healing. So after resurrection, he goes back there. And here, in this scene, he's by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? And he looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what he said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he'd entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were there with him, and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Well, as I've said to you, these are two stories that inform each other. I hope you noticed one important detail, which has to do with the number. The woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years. The child is 12 years old. 
These are two different people, two different stages of life, but both are unclean, both are healed, and they're both the same story. So let's unpack them and see if we can see. First of all, it begins with the leader of the synagogue. And the leader of the synagogue, Jairus, is an important person, charge of the building and worship, probably the richest guy in town. But here he falls at Jesus' feet, revealing two things. One, he is desperate. He loves his child. And two, his own regard for Jesus. Come lay hands on her, he says. Jairus knows that Jesus can heal just like Elijah or Elisha. God is talking again. Some 800 years before in the same neighborhood, Elijah or Elisha would have done that thing uh, for anyone. And so he believes that Jesus has the same prophetic power. But Jesus is interrupted on his way by someone else unclean. Details are usually scant in Mark's gospel. You don't really have long stories, as I mentioned before. But here we have everything we need about this woman. She's pitiful. She has suffered and no one can help her. She's spent every dime she ever had. And the doctors either can't help her or more probably they're terrified of helping her because she's making everyone around her unclean. She's falling apart. You know, it's important to note that blood is a symbol of life. And so with her hemorrhages, life is leaving her everywhere. Life is leaving her and she's dying. And then she's making the world unclean around her. It's a horror story. But if I touch him, she thinks she has no right. She has very, very little hope. She is unfit, and yet she dares to reach out for God. But remember what we know about Isaiah. Remember what we know about Peter. Uh, God can make unclean things clean anyway. God makes her clean again when she touches him. But better yet, Jesus feels it. It is personal. It is visceral. Who touched me? Which tells us that when we hurt, God hurts. And when we heal, God feels that too. And he says to in verse 34, your faith has made you well. Made well is an important word. In the New Testament, the Greek word is so-so, and, and the word means saved. So it means that she was made well, but it also means that she was saved. It means that she was healed of her disease, but she's also saved from this ostracizing uh, idea of unclean. Uh, she's made well uh, of the hemorrhages, but she's also saved from despair, right? She is restored to God and to others. She is fully, completely whole. But you see, there's another problem. A little girl has died. So Jesus is on his way, which is to say uh, that, uh, that now Jesus has got a bigger problem and that he was too late to get there to save the child's life. The girl is gone, and now she's unclean to boot. She's not sleeping. She's dead, which renders her unclean. Unclean is part of the drama here. And they say to him, teacher, don't bother the teacher any further, which is not an honor, but also a device to show an incomplete understanding. Whenever someone calls Jesus teacher, they don't know what Jesus can do. So Jesus brushes aside the professional mourners already in place. He brushes aside the crowds, brushes aside the laughter, brushes aside the derision, uh, takes a select few from the disciples, and he goes in and he takes the girl by the hand and says, Talitha kum, in Aramaic, that means little girl, get up. It's no incantation. It's personal. It's visceral. He cares. He touches her. And she does. So there's some takeaways from this lesson, right? I mean, faith and prayer are conduits to God's power. I mean, God feels what we feel. Love is more important than barriers. Religion is intended to bring people to God and not drive them away. 
And here, in the light of God's grace, we can see what's unclean and what is not. And people are not. Well, before we go, I also want us to consider that this gives us an ethic. And we could be tempted to simply read stories like this flat and avoid the foods that might harm us or avoid the people that might harm us and figure that we're living in the world of Jesus. But in order to understand what to do with this, we need to go from Galilee now to a world far away, which would be the world of Rome, or Corinth in particular, to a letter in the back of our Bible that Paul wrote to a church that he started there. Now, we've talked about Corinth in previous episodes, actually the, the prior the prior season. And Corinth, I want you to imagine, is a city about the size of the village around our church. But instead of having 30,000 people in it, about 150 to 200,000 people in it with an altar on every corner. And on these altars, people would worship. And it was very important because this would involve some form of sacrifice. It was a civic idea, but meat being perishable, very perishable and very rare, a sacrifice would be a handy opportunity for people to eat a delicacy that they wouldn't ordinarily otherwise have as a part of their daily diet. So a sacrifice at the altar of Apollo would be called Apollo's Supper, or a sacrifice at the altar of Diana would be Diana's Supper, or the emperor called the emperor's supper. It was the genius of Paul to take this word or take this phrase and to call their worship together with the dining upon the bread and the wine of the Eucharist and to call it the Lord's Supper. That's where we get the name. We get the name from the town of Corinth. But here's the problem. Christians living in Corinth knew that the altar to Apollo was just that. It was just a marble statue. And so the meat sacrificed there was just meat. And so they were going and attending these suppers. And Paul said, no, just because you know that this meat is not clean, that doesn't mean that everyone doesn't know this. Love has to always be our witness and love is our lead. Love makes us clean for each other, but the lack of love can also make something unclean. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, as food is to be a cause of their falling, I'll never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The food's not unclean because it's sacrificed to Apollos. The food is unclean because it might hurt someone. Let that be our ethic between clean and unclean. If it doesn't have love in it, it doesn't have God in it. May God be in every corner of our lives. Thanks so much, friends. Join me again. We'll go back to the world of Jesus.